Hi, Jesse. How are you? Hi, Angus. I'm doing fine. How are you? I am very well. So I wanted to start off by uh, giving you an opportunity to talk to me like the idiot that I am about your whole field of study and the magazine that you have developed and talk to me as though I know nothing because I do know nothing. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I always want to preface this with, I'm not an expert. I'm not formally trained in the stuff that I'm talking to you about today. I am very much coming at this from a grassroots level, probably like many of your readers and listeners. Um, my training is actually, I was a CIA analyst. Sorry, when I mentioned CIA, everyone says, oh, that's a shiny thing. Talk about that. But trust me, it's, it's mostly boring and it's not really relevant, except that's my training. Um, and I no longer work there. I'm now self-employed, which may end up being relevant, you know, <laughs> to talking about this type of person and yeah. why one works for me and why one doesn't. But um, I started shortly after I quit the CIA in 2017, uh, actually got it launched in 2018, a magazine that is called Third Factor. That name means something, but let me give you the explanation of what it is first, uh, the magazine is. And so Third Factor is a magazine that I launched for, the catchphrase I started off with was gifted, quirky, intense, creative people. Mm -hmm. Perhaps sounds like some people you may know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> other term that I think describes this very much is the highly sensitive person, though many people come to Third Factor because they don't love that frame. There's a lot of frames talking about the same group, but they all emphasize different things. Uh, and I just felt like there wasn't really a place, a grassroots place for people like this to talk about this experience, um, which was obviously relevant to me as I was leaving a very uh, stressful, bureaucratized, prestigious job uh, and going, making a 180 switch and trying to do something creative. I've always wanted to do something creative. I've always wanted to be a writer. I want to engage in discussions. I have a drive to do that. That was hard to do when I was, you know, working at, at the agency. So I mean, I'm getting into to why I, I quit, but um, yeah, I mean, you can imagine what that might be like. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like your imagination. And so I, <laughs> I but without car chases. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, the Third Factor magazine was supposed to be a supplement for me as I progressed with this creative life, trying to do the thing. I always kept saying, I want to do the thing. I want to build the thing. But I want to find other people like this who have this drive and this, you know, need to create things and independence and even a little stubbornness, um, you know, very much independent. And it seemed to match with, okay, getting into why I called it Third Factor and our, our bedrock, what we really were about. The best description I found of this sort of way of being was through something that is called the theory of positive disintegration. And this was created by a Polish Canadian psychiatrist named Kazimierz Dombrowski. I think that's how you pronounce it. It looks like Dabrowski when you're just reading it in, in, in your English speaker. Yeah. And um, so I read about this and was was especially drawn to these um, this description of something. This is how people almost always get into positive disintegration. Something called overexcitability. And overexcitability is an innate way that you're wired that breaks down into five domains, manifests in five domains. That is the intellect, the imagination, the emotions, the senses, and the uh, and psychomotor domain, kinesthetic, a lot of energy. 
Mm -hmm. Some of your readers have looked into other things like ADHD, maybe they're going, wait, that sounds similar. It has been found. People now who are studying this saying, oh, especially the psychomotor domain of OE, that's just OE. But again, these are all frames that are coming at probably something similar from a different way, emphasizing different things. Going back to the, the highly sensitive person, um, another word for overexcitability, there's some issues with translation from the Polish. Some people say that a less negative valence sort of descriptive term that's closer to Dabrowski's original Polish would be super stimulability, right? Again, oh, interesting, like, yeah. yeah. Super stimulability, which is basically high sensitivity. But here's where the frame matters, right? High sensitivity, and I get this from my readers fairly often. People will come in and say, oh, this stuff about being an HSP, it just is all about hiding from the world and self-care and like managing yourself. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to hide. We want to do the thing. Do the thing mm -hmm. is my thing, right? And so I find people who have this uh, this particular manifestation of the overexcitabilities, which is a way that that channels that approach to it. And then what happens, that's that's just one element. That's a basic door into TPD, the theory of positive disintegration. Um, but what it, what it's really about is a lot bigger than that. And people get uh, people in the uh, the gifted education field, which is where overexcitability got adopted. That's a tangent. I'll come back to that. But they, there's some legitimate criticism that overexcitability gets taken out of the theory and it just starts to break down. And then really you are just maybe using it as a nicer way to say ADHD, which has the word disorder in it. Like let's be clear. Right, right. But when you plug it into positive disintegration, that's where you get this, I think really empowering and cool framework. And maybe it's just a story we're telling ourselves, but hey, that's pretty important, I think. Um, so, well, if the story works, right? If the story yeah, works. It, it, it's yeah. interesting what you say about framing because this type of, of kid that uh, we're coming across all of the time, this, this pattern which never repeats but always rhymes, it's really difficult to describe without either sounding quite insulting and or using words like disorder and this kind of thing, or sounding incredibly smug. Like there's something quite smug sounding about like, well, you know, my child is is very, very gifted and so on and so forth. And of course there will be people who, who have, let's say, inflated the uh, capabilities of their kids throughout the ages. Um, so it's really important to nail the, 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 uh, the framing of it. It's interesting that you said, what did you say, super stimulability? Yes. Yeah, that rings true. So, um, so we're sort of lacking a word. Where do you think the concept of nerd fits in? Oh, it's it's definitely part of it. It's not all of it, right? We're talking about a really diverse group, and I found this through the third factor audience, right? Um, people come in and they're like, "Oh, I thought I was going to find people like me," and and I'm trying to put out there the message that. This is a very diverse group. Um, people who are like this, um, you hear the term profoundly gifted. If you wanna go into um, <laughs> smug, like, oh God, that makes me cringe. But people think, oh, I'm profoundly gifted. I'm like the very far end of the bell curve on this particular measure. And when I find other profoundly gifted people, then they'll be just like me. No, they, they won't be. They are more different from each other than they are from the general population because you're just you're so far out there in some some particular trait that just manifests differently. So yeah, um, it's, I'm sorry, I, I remembered something else you said. Remind me your specific question here. <laughs> well, it was just about whether nerd is a good uh, oh, way to nerd, capture that's this. What it was. 
Yeah, no, the nerds are under this umbrella. I'm using the term umbrella. (laughs) (laughs) Where did I hear that one? But yes, they're definitely part of it. My father was a big nerd. Like when you say nerd, like what does that bring to mind, right? Oh, science maybe, or the anime nerd is a thing. Like nerdery manifests in different interests, but it's usually it connotes certain interests, right? But then is someone a, you know, a baking nerd? I don't know. Like, you don't see as much baking in this group. Uh, That's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting point. Can you be a baking nerd? I suppose for me, nerd is like um, an ability to hyper-focus. Yeah, okay, yeah. And and also sort of uh, uh, an interest in the philosophy behind something in some way. So it's kind of Star Trek, the next generation as opposed to Star Trek Discovery, right? It's the oh, sort yeah. of... And it's funny you mentioned that because I mentioned my dad who is a classic nerd. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago. I wish I could be having this conversation with him. But um, yeah, he loved Star Trek The Next Generation and complained all the time about the new Star Trek. So yes, like <laughs> I'm genetically related to someone putting exactly that model. But I would say you mentioned hyper-focus. Again, that's not something I see in everyone who fits this super stimulable pattern, but it's very common, right? Yes. Um, deep interests um, are, are very common. And then also, I think um, maybe this is a little more, you go from the, this, you know, autism to ADHD, and I don't really like those labels um, in, in, in most cases. Some cases, yes, just not the self-diagnosed sort of describing general non-pathological behaviors. Um, when I talk about the narrative and the framing, but that is a little bit more like the ADHD sort of, um, I guess, well, they hyper-focus too, right? But it's all over the place. It's not the deep, you know, passionate life, uh, long abiding interest. So, but you see both of those, um, you see hyper-focus and then, you know, and then other people have this super stimulability that manifests without that. But yeah, Yeah. to answer your question briefly, yes, it fits. Yeah, I think the hyper-focus, it can be like in an afternoon, it can be this somebody who just gets right into something in an afternoon and is totally, the rest of the world shuts off, but it can also be manifest itself across a lifetime. So even when, when you present your career and your career change, it was very obvious that, that it was quite, you went from being absolutely one thing to being absolutely another in a very conscious, mindful way. Whereas some people aren't like that, they could just can kind of drift and, juggle different ideas and it doesn't really cause them any stress but it would certainly cause me stress I need to know what I'm doing well it's it's interesting that I presented myself that way because one of the reasons that I didn't want to stay at CIA is because being um you know the the demands of the job and holding a security clearance and this the energy that it takes didn't allow me to go off in six directions at once I always want to be doing a lot of different things um, I was trying to do activism at the same time, which is <laughs> maybe a, a humorous story, especially because no, I was actually a member of the Democratic Socialists of America at the same time I was in the CIA. And, <laughs> and then right. they started like going on about how evil CIA was. And I'm like, just quietly sitting there. In the <laughs> yeah, so I'm weird. Um, I did. I thought that worked fine for me, but it doesn't it doesn't fit a mold. But I but I do coming back to your point. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And like people who are all in on one thing and then want to move and be all in on another thing is definitely part of this this group. But that's why I say it manifests different ways because there are those of us who, uh, I, I fit another very common manifestation 
I want to do too many things at once. And again, things that don't seem to go together, but I'm, I'm interested in all of them. You know, I, I, I can't pick. Um, right. I was just talking to someone the other day who, who fit that. I was like, oh, wow, that's me too. Multi-potentiality um, is a word I hear people organizing around in that respect. So it's weird. Maybe that's why it breaks down to like, oh, autism and ADHD. Like one is the flighty, let's do all the things. And the other is the hyper-focused. I don't know. Yeah. So I wrote something about this the other day that it's, um, have you heard of the talent stack, this idea from Scott Adams that. I, I think I have. Yeah. So uh, it's, it was his theory of, um, actually it was his theory of what um, enabled President Trump to be successful, which is that he wasn't really very good at anything, but he was good enough at a bunch of things. And I think I wrote something, a piece called The Quirk Stack, which is this idea that a lot of the the time people are looking for a label and maybe they've got some autism spectrum traits, but it's not terribly helpful to kind of pin everything on a diagnosis. And maybe they've got a little bit kind of ADHD and a little bit of OCD. And these things pile up to the point where they're as different, let's say, from the average person as somebody who has uh, Asperger's, but they don't, there's no word for it. And I think the HSP, the highly sensitive person, even though it is a, I think it's a kind of horrible framing to be honest, because yeah, it is. is a good way to look at it. Now, am I right in saying that originally the HSP was thought to be 20% of the general population? Is that a figure you've heard? Yeah, I think I have heard that figure. I think I read recently that it was even as high as 30%, but I guess it is one of those things that is a spectrum. It's just where do you draw the line? Right. Um, but I, I'm not sure, but yes, I've heard that. Okay. Um, I wonder how often in your community that you've built, the relationship between the mind and the body comes up. Is that something that people talk about? I would say we, it doesn't come up often, but, but, um, you know, because we're just not inclined to, to think that for the most part. When it does come up, it's often older people who have become a little wiser and learned that they're constantly um, have this energy flowing through them that is causing them stress when they start to have, you know, the muscle tension and that sort of thing, or they hit, you know, they burnt out or, or things like that, that force them to pay attention to the connection with the body. Mm-hmm. That is, that's more where I see it. And you do see a lot of the things like disconnection from the body in, in younger people. Again, that's why they're not talking about it. They're just not paying attention. Um, so the, the, a lot of people who identify themselves as asexual, I mean, overrepresented in this group for sure. So yes, it's, it's related. That doesn't mean it's talked about. Right. And I wonder, so it, it's probably the answer would be no then, but I wonder if anyone's ever talked about puberty and like, was this, is it harder to go through puberty if you're this kind of person? Yeah. Well, um, that has come up because I have brought it up. Um, okay. and yeah, because I had trouble, um, for me, there was a, a lot of the intellectual projection. You know, you, you see what what you're you think you're you're expected to be as a you know maturing woman, and you get taken to go bra shopping, and there are all these ads that just like freak you out because you don't want to look like those women selling bras. Um, and it just it be, the intellectual weight. You know, you start analyzing this, and and that just yeah, I've put that out there, and when I put it out there. I do get responses from people saying, oh yeah, 
yeah, that that's definitely a thing. Not everybody. Again, that's why it's so hard to draw a circle around this group because it'll always cut some people out. A lot of diversity, but yeah, it's and it's because it, it's not just your body. You're not in touch with your body. You're just in your head all the time, overthinking things. Right. Yeah. So it becomes very disembodied, and and I think that also the internet plays into that as well that if you're kind of in this very, very expansive and immersive and uh, space and it can go take you off in any number of directions, that it's very easy just kind of to forget you have a body at all. You would only notice it if your fingers stopped working because you couldn't be able to type or use the mouse, right? Yeah. So we haven't said the T word yet. No, we haven't. <laughs> so the reason that you and I connected is because one of the parents that I'm working with well, a lot of them are, are trying to kind of nail this type. They're trying to get it understood that there's a certain type of young person who is part of this teenage onset uh, dysphoria group and is uh, identifying as trans. And they're kind of doing a lot of research. And it is very strange because there isn't a gay personality type, right? You would never say, oh, she's a lesbian, so therefore she's organized or chaotic like it, it doesn't really make sense whereas with these young people who are identifying as trans there's such a clear type and so it was suggested to me to look into this uh this highly sensitive person category and all the rest of it um and it definitely rings true for so many of these mothers of boys and i'm not saying it's not girls because i just don't really know about the girls um is that something that people have noticed from within your community? Yeah, that's a great question because I... Oh, hold on. Spoke out about it and- Hold on a second, can you hear me? Of, um, parents who like what I have done. Hold on, can you, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. It froze Sorry. for a minute. Shall I go? Yeah, it froze. Um, can you... Oh, it says my internet connection is unstable. Well, why is that? It shouldn't be. I've turned the VPN off. Okay. It seems to be all right now. Okay. Uh, so, well, the question was... What was the question? It was like, is that something you've noticed from within your community? And you said that's right. a great question. Yes, that that is a great question in that um, I noticed it and I tried to bring it up. and. So the first thing, which I, I think that your, your readers and your listeners are already aware of, is that this is happening to those so-called gifted children. You know, sorry, we have to use that word that we all hate, but that's what these kids are mostly being labeled, right? And it seems it's, it's pretty much all of them is what I've heard. Approaching 100% is what one therapist whom I'm in, who I interviewed had said to me. And so we're all noticing that. And even now, um, I see more of the traditional gifted education types who I sometimes, I'm not super close to them, but I look at their, their social media sometimes because there's some overlap in our audiences. Um, and they're noticing it too and saying, wow, we have these special children. They're very, I mean, they're very social justice oriented. So they're very inclined to like, okay, this has fallen to us to, to nurture these trans children. Um, and isn't this a wonderful thing? And so you see that framework, um, but I saw it I mean, this is happening now that I'm seeing that, but I saw this in 2018 around the time I was founding this magazine and said, huh, I'm gonna put that on the list of things to explore in this new magazine I'm founding. Because 
Um, so it's been very clear to me for a long time, having researched positive disintegration and overexcitable so-called people, uh, which is related to creativity, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I, so I read some books by like Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who is a you know an eminent creativity researcher, now retired, but um, has you know he's he's the guy when it comes to creativity. And his book, which is just called Creativity, I recommend it to your readers if they want to sort of add a, another angle to this, talks about androgyny, right? And creative people tend to be more androgynous. Unmeasured, it's the BEM sex role inventory. So like you can critique that that measure if if you like. Oh, well, that's one that I've seen used. I think Csikszentmihalyi was even saying more broader than just here's some tests we did with that. He just observations, interviews, just things he had witnessed. But um, and he said creativity comes from this abilities to sort of tap into multiple ways of being, um, the masculine and the feminine, um, which you know you see as two axes. And having both of those, they're both sets of strengths. And so if you're high in both of them, then you can be extra powerful. That's where the creativity comes from, is the blending of those things. Whereas if you're low in both of them, because again, they're strengths, so you don't have either masculine or feminine strengths, you are undifferentiated and that's bad. That's more associated with, with uh, poor functioning, quality of life, well-being. Um, and I don't know this, this is me starting to speculate, you know, right? But I wonder if, if people who have the capacity to be high on either measure um, for whatever innate reason, I don't know where that comes from, but could some of these kids who feel so bad um, and are identifying as trans because they know that they, you know they're, they're not they're lacking the masculine or feminine strengths that they think they should have could it be an effort to try to to achieve the opposite form of strength because they know they have the capacity for for that as well well again these are just questions I started asking myself so I, I started researching. You've done the, the, the boys. I looked at the girls because I came from this experience myself. Um, it's funny, this term non-binary, right? I used to always just say like, I'm pretty androgynous. You know, I'd say this yeah. to people. I didn't want to be a man. I'm not masculine, but I definitely had masculine behaviors, you know, but yeah. you get folded for if you're a girl. You're like, oh, don't, I was told, don't intimidate the boys. <laughs> so, you know. Wow. And so, of course, I get it that like teenage girls who are like this want to flee from that. Um, and it's so it's very, though I didn't experience that, it's very easy for me to also imagine teenage boys wanting to flee from that and, and, and tap into their feminine strengths and get and, and, and you know, you, you know more than, about that than I do. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, very often it kind of it gets set up as a construct, which is kind of like this will solve my problems. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, a lot of parents find it really difficult because on the one hand it's like they can see they they get what you've just said intuitively like that the, the kid is different there is a level of creativity which if it's not processed correctly could actually become quite destructive yes. but what happens particularly with the boys is that this just gets linked with hormones and these supplements and these hormone supplements which they're wanting to take and they genuinely see it as being something which is going to resolve all of their senses of being ill at ease within the world and of course sometimes they they desist from this and then sometimes they don't and they go through with it and they regret and that's such a serious thing when you meet people who who regret and I know that's the case for the girls as well that they they have a real hard road ahead of them in life um I, yeah have any uh, in your community has anyone 
who's a detransition or a desist to come in? Well, okay, so my problem is that I seem to be reaching through my channels I've been using older people. Right. Um, that sort of surprised me. Like, I mean, older than me. I am 38 and I have readers in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is interesting to me that this idea, coming back to positive disintegration, that seems to be something that people become interested in when they've achieved a lot of wisdom and have you know, gotten their life together. I thought it made more sense for these younger people. I think it's a perfect lens to understand what both the boys and girls are going through. And I'm actually in the process of talking to some uh, younger people about how do I reach those people? Because when I have talked, I've gone out to look for detransitioners. I've asked them about this. They're like, oh yeah, no, that that pretty much fits what I went through. Not always, because they're questioners, right? They're like, well, what does this mean? I don't yes, know. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, it's funny for me because I said, okay, check. Yeah, you fit that box too. <laughs> You're going to question everything. Um, but I'm, I'm sure to the extent that I have found them, yes, it has resonated with them. Yeah. yeah. And I think for a lot of them, they kind of, they have learned an awful lot in a very, very short period of time. It's like a super steep learning curve. Some of these, you know, they're like 28 or 29 and they, they have a very wise kind of mentality with the, with the hindsight that they gained. Yeah. But they also, it's complicated because, but in their own terms, they did something really dumb and, and important. So how do you resolve that? I mean, maybe not specifically with, with, uh, that particular type of journey but just how does that fit into positive dis uh, disintegration this idea of being able to look back in hindsight and understand a mistake yeah well it's kind of core to it because there's this like a rubric of levels that you progress through and um you know it's just a, a, people go back and forth they fit many at once but like roughly to be able to talk about it right there's these levels um and so you go from so level one is positive you know you're you're integrated you're totally integrated people at level one are not the focus of this theory it doesn't apply to them basically you get into level two which is called unilevel disintegration where you just don't know what path is the right path which way which is higher and which is lower and you're subject to uh social pressures you feel ambivalences and you're buffeted this way and that and that according to what Dabrowski said with his research with his patients was the most dangerous level right um that is where there is you know risk of self-harm and just despair and just the worst things are level at level two and the way one gets out of level two is by perceiving something higher right and that's when you reach level three which is called spontaneous multi-level disintegration. And the trick is, this is where it will disappoint your listeners. Uh, it is spontaneous. You can't say like, all right, here you go. Time to be in level three. Um, but I mean, I was re I just read your, your excellent work in Quillette. I just saw that part five had come out. And I think there was a parent in there who posed the right question, right? To just say, I don't remember what the question was. Oh, it was about like, how many genders are there, right? Right, yeah. And that's a great intellectual bait to get someone to like to think but they you, you can't it won't always work if there's not a crack for you to wet stick the wedge into then it's not going to work but if a crack opens up maybe that's where you stick the wedge in and get them to see wait a minute this doesn't you know there's a higher and lower more better and worse answer here right yeah and then you get it and then the, the stuff that my magazine we, we talk a lot about the, these higher levels of like organized multi-level disintegration where you're really processing these things but you talked about you know when when these people see they feel embarrassed they feel shame they feel 
like horrified that they used to think that. That's a big part of the theory of positive disintegration. There are these forces that are called dynamisms, which is really jargony, but it's it's really easy to understand. It's just these psychological processes that you experience if you're this type of intense person and they're linked to different levels. Like what I was saying, ambivalences are a dynamism at level two, but guilt and shame are actually dynamisms at level three, along with things like creative uh, creative impulses. And there's some, you know, there's some things called uh, inferiority to oneself, which I think is interesting because you, you, I know it sounds weird, right? But you, uh, you think of what you could be and what you think you, you should be. You should be a person who doesn't fall for that kind of stuff. You were gullible before. Well, you're not going to do that again. And so you get this idea of the person you, you think you ought to be. Um, and you start trying to act in line with that. But a big part of that is guilt and shame. See, I would just call that good old fashioned Catholic guilt. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. uh, but a lot of people would identify with that. Yeah, the sense of pressure and, and the, the the weight of these expectations. And I think particularly if you're young and people are looking at you and saying there's so much you could do, it almost, I mean, that's, um, it, it becomes a burden, which is quite difficult to carry and it can actually kind of crush you. Yeah, well, and it's funny that you mentioned that weight of expectations, you know, Catholic guilt, that kind of thing. Like all of those things make me think of another trait that's very common, again, not universal, but very common in this group. Um, it's, it even has its own diagnosis in, in the DSM, the oppositional defiant disorder, which I would imagine is not unheard of in this, this population, but it's like, don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to do what you told me to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting you say that because sometimes there's a, a, a real sort of bargaining which goes on between these young men and their parents where they're kind of like, okay, well, if you agree that theoretically somebody could have they pronouns and that could be like as legitimate as something else, then I will agree that I will do some other kind of behavior, which is really not kind of philosophically connected. So that, that's that's definitely in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's that process of just negotiating and trying to figure out what, wh how does this work? What is, what is the right thing? What is fairness? How does it even work? Um, mm -hmm. in, in these big, and again, you have to remember the emotional charge behind these things. I think some of these things that seem irrational for these intense people, well, they're not being rational because they're totally motivated by a, a strong feeling and they're just using, I mean, you hear that metaphor of the elephant and the rider and it's mostly the elephant. I mean, that's true for everyone. This is not just a highly sensitive, super stimulable person thing, but you have a very powerful elephant and a very powerful rider fighting with mm -hmm. this sort of person. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really important, both the intellect and the emotion and how they clash and how they try to sort it out. Okay. So in terms of this kind of, let's call it a body-mind conflict, yeah. it's about reaching the point where you can't perceive which one of the parts is, is higher and then having something happen, which you can't really schedule which then illuminates that one is the right way to go and, and the other is the wrong way to go. And I guess just kind of in the meantime, just waiting, which is, as you say, not going to be what people want to hear. But, but it sounds like you also think that you can create the circumstances where that is more, that elevation from level two to level three in this terminology is more likely to happen. And indeed, you could create circumstances where it's less likely to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. something which 
a parent could get some help with or do you think it's just too personal it's just like too embedded in that, that relationship Oh, geez, that's a good question. Um, I wish there were more therapists out there who, who practice positive disintegration. There, there really aren't that many that I know of. Um, and, and, and then finding some who, who both, I, I know some who do practice that, but I think they may also be more of the gender affirming type. You know, you need to have, check those, you know, one box and not the other. So um, I, I, I'm afraid that that's, that's what I'm trying to build, but it doesn't exist yet. Um, places where people can come in and talk about this process and what has worked. And honestly, I feel like I'm learning from the parents of these kids in, mm. in trying to build it myself. I know that's completely unsatisfying. Um, so I wish I could be of more help. Um, well, no, I, I don't think that that's unsatisfying at all because the, these traits are genetic. So you do see this parent community is, is full of some pretty extraordinary people. Like they're not terribly normal. Are they a lot of these... <laughs> Mothers and fathers are very gifted themselves and they can kind of recognize this trait moving downwards. I want to ask you, this is a really like basic question, but it might be quite useful. Do you believe in gender? <laughs> That's a great question for me to think about. Um, I, okay, well, people talk about gender and gender identity, right? And then like, what's the difference between those two? I don't, believe in gender identity. I know I've tried to talk to some of these people who, who do, and I mean, they've, they've canceled me. Uh, they don't talk to me. I had a lot of friends who are of this type, right? Uh, being an, an elder millennial, some of my friends, we're still in the group that some people are identifying as non-binary. I have a lot of friends who have done that. Um, and I just, I just want to say to them, like, what's the difference between you and me? I'm not doing that. We have these things in common, but like you're just saying that you're not a feminine woman and we already knew that and so to the extent I've talked to strangers not my friends because with friends they like they feel super betrayed and I think there's also the the internet mediating that and these are online friends right I was a writer online as like as a teenager I've been a, I was a teenager online you know I know at age 38 people don't expect that but I was one of the early ones my dad was a computer programmer so we had the internet and I wrote stories and a lot of them did fanfic. I did not do fanfic. Um, so, but they were already into the sort of more innocent than it is now, but kind of still weird to me and, you know, unexpected in the nineties, late nineties and, and into 2000, um, you know, the, the slash uh, fanfic that, you know, and they, all the ones who were into slash, you know, <laughs> they're now saying they're non-binary. So to come back to your question, um, I don't think there is gender identity because I don't see anything different between me and them, except I think there may be ways that we relate to our bodies, to our sexualities that we're trying to figure out, you know, why do I have this way of being that is different? And, and, and but, but something that these, these people do is that they, they other themselves. This is what gets me. They say, well, I am not a woman. You are a woman because you're okay being a woman, but I am not. And then the conversation doesn't happen. So we don't, we don't sit there and say, well, why aren't you a woman? I'm, I'm interested in that and, and see, oh, you feel that way too, but you think it's compatible with being a woman. What, that's, that's where I think that if we could have those conversations, gender identity wouldn't hold up in most cases. Maybe it would be a useful construct or maybe we just, we just say gender for, like I, I'm, I'm, I don't have a strong opinion on this. I'm, I, I could change my mind, but 
I think there's going to be transgender people. I'm, you know, like many of these parents share this view, like, yeah, there were transgender people before that. And that's fine. And I'm not saying that they'll, they won't exist or they shouldn't exist. I just don't think that's the same thing. I, I think I can get behind the old school transsexuals, whatever, as being a different etiology than this, but gender right. identity, they, so that, so the one person I found who would talk to me about this so far, and I'm trying to find others because I think it's interesting and important to this community, but like, oh, well, you sound like you, you are an envy. You are, you're agender. Like, but, <laughs> but how many people are actually what you're calling agender? It's not different from most people's experience, but you feel so different. You feel that this is, you were the weird girl or the weird boy who couldn't make, who couldn't perform masculinity or femininity. So you're agender, but you don't talk to people because it's so painful. You don't want to, you hide that part and you don't realize other people feel that same pain. Even normal, neurotypical, not gifted people feel that. Mm -hmm. Maybe feel it more. <laughs> So I did a, a survey of parents um, where I was kind of asking a bunch of questions. And what one of the purposes was to get into the differences between the boys and the girls, because we know that this is a massively, this teenage onset uh, transgender identity is massively female. And it was quite interesting. There were some significant differences and there were some surprising similarities where you might expect a difference. One of the differences, which I'm probably more interested in than the average person is, in terms of like these pronoun and identity labels, the girls are more likely to do they, them stuff. They're more likely to do neo pronouns like these newly created words, Zim and so forth. They're also more likely to be non-binary or to, I mean, what does that even mean? But to, to use this term non-binary about themselves. Whereas the boys, it's, and there are outliers here, but just generally it's more like no, I'm she, I'm a woman. So it's, there's this thing that perhaps young women are almost trying to liberate themselves from categories. Whereas young men are more like, no, I'm just in the wrong category. And perhaps even idolizing the category of woman, although it's a strange form of woman, it's, it's you know, very sexualized and so forth. Does that make sense to you? Can you can you think of why that might be? Because there's lots of things you could do with that. You can come at that from a men's rights uh, angle and say, well, men are vilified, and and so you know they are trying to escape uh, being men by going into women, and women aren't vilified in the same way. So that's why there's no parallel. You can come at it from a radical feminist point of view and make basically the opposite argument and say well, this is happening more with young women because it's harder to be a young woman. It's not harder to be a young man. So what do you do with that? Yeah, well, all I can say, again, my training is as an analyst and <laughs> I'm not an expert in the, the science behind it, but I've noticed the very same thing. Um, it lines up with my experience, again, where I'm like, I don't think I'm you know, masculine, but I, I didn't relate to femininity. I called myself pretty androgynous. And so... But it is true that like the questions I would ask, right, as a non-expert that I wish someone would research. And that's the problem. That's like another of our huge problems is people just can't ask these questions and can't get the data to answer it. But what it, it we have to come back to the body that we're also dissociated from. And is it that, you know, boys still do mature you know, different with, you know, hormone, the effect of testosterone and the way that 
guides your sexual desires and your development. Whereas girls are, have been known to be more like fluid with their sexuality and more like later developing and more cautious. And just the way that male and female minds develop at puberty would be to me the most interesting place to explore with that. But not, not just with the sexuality, but all the stuff that goes along with it. Again, the socialization that you know, whether it, both both the rad femmes and the men's rights activists have a point to make, I think that they are describing the female and male experiences pretty well, actually, especially the modern ones with the, you know, toxic masculinity. Who would want to be a man if the, being a man is toxic? It totally makes sense to me. So, but also sex as a woman just can never be equal with being a man. And so a woman doesn't want to usually become a man, um, but then there are the, the the slash, you know, that's a different, like, there's different ideologies. Maybe they, maybe some want to be men, but uh, but they all became non-binary. So as I talk a lot, I say, well, that doesn't follow. But yeah, the, I would come back to the body and what's going on within the body. Right, and it, it, because you're getting these different, the, the two sexes is differentiating because of these this uh, new flood of hormones, and it does change you because yeah. maybe with testosterone you're better enabled to go out and see something and be quite aggressive about it and with uh, uh, in that you're not getting that with estrogen which in a funny kind of way proves that you can't really have a gender identity because <laughs> yeah yeah so it, it I mean I I I come back to that there's there's seven billion gender identities <laughs> that's it's each, even when I talk about these these super stimulable quirky people, and you ask me, are they like this? Like, well, some of them are like this, some of them are like that, yeah. because it's you, it's it's complexity theory, right? They can't tell what influence on any person is leading to this outcome. You can just group them together. Um, I I wish there'd be more research. People, will, some of these things I'm saying, I'm sure are wrong. You know, I'm just we just don't have the answers. No one's letting us ask the questions, and that's all we can do. Right. Why do you think? It is so difficult to research this. And, and it's the same question as why is it that you can't have that conversation about, well, what makes you feel like you're not a woman? Why does it get shut down? So the, the, the circumstances under which you could enter level three are just like shut off. It seems like it's so different from any other topic, including some pretty contentious ones like I mean, race and IQ is obviously a really obvious place to go, right? Um, what do you think accounts for that? I've given that question a lot of thought because of my own problem. Uh, when I, I published an article interviewing D-trans women and some happily transitioned trans men and talking about overexcitability, just exploratory conversations. And I definitely got a lot of trouble for that. Some people cut cut me off for writing that, which I thought was just, let's just talk about this, guys. I'm I think I'm writing it in such a way that it says you you can be a trans man and be happy. This I don't say you can't have that, but why is it? Because these these young women have detransitioned. They are unhappy and they are our type of people. Why can't we have that? And so I thought about that. And again, my theory um, is that. This has to do with something about this personality type, which I think is very much overrepresented among the very online people, writers, 
you don't, why would you want to be a writer if you don't have all this churning inside? You would go out and do something, you know, a little more practical than yeah. living online and digesting these things. So remember, these discussions are happening, even among the people who are not transgender, who are not manifesting their, you know, their, their quirkiness in that way, their, their super stimulability in that way. This is still what drives these conversations. The crusaders, the social justice activists. I mean, I joined, I was in an activist organization and that's where you see the tension between two different types of overexcitability, um, the intellect and the emotion. I talked about the rider and the elephant. They're very, they're very powerful, but some people are, just as some people are right-handed and others are left-handed, people with these intensities can lead with one or the other. And I'm seeing the split between the people who lead with the emotions, maybe because they have trauma, maybe there's all these reasons that people who are more, you know, credentialed and expert than me could explain to you, but I'm seeing them on that grassroots discussion level uh, that might lead to lead them to lead with that emotion. And they want to be protected. They want to, they're online to express their emotion and get validation and soothe the hurt. Whereas there are people who are, here to ask questions because they just don't understand and they want to find other people to connect with over discussing the why, why, why. Mm -hmm. And you see both of that in this community. But I think given the nature of the internet, um, given that we can't hear tone of voice or see expressions, you know, it tilts everyone over into the emotions. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because I had conversations with people about this issue now they were uh, they were fairly woke people. I, I knew a lot of people from my time and you know as a socialist activist. You can add, you know my my views change all the time. Like don't don't I don't identify with that anymore. But um, I've been with these people and um, <laughs> they would say things in in private when it was just one on one that you know kind of disagreed with me. But like I, I asked one of one of my friends who has since cut me off. Um, you know, but what about the, the the trans girls in sports? Doesn't it have any concern? And these are not these are not athletic people. You know, not in touch with their bodies. So her response was just like, "Well, maybe it's time to get rid of sports," because she was kind of caught off <laughs> guard. Like, "Oh, you've never played sports, so easy for you to say." Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I'll tell you that um, that person later like got really mad at me for for saying online, right? Online, um, once it was public, once I expressed sympathy with what JK Rowling had said, the JK Rowling letter, right? When discussion moves online, she was done with me. She knew I thought these things, but I had said it online and that meant, you know, now she was cutting me off. Another person who had discussed with me is a lesbian friend who was exploring these sort of things was like, oh, this is very interesting. And I'm interested in your research with the D trans people. And like, let's have these really cool conversations about it. And then she also cut me off for saying this online. So there's something about what online-ness does to this discussion. Yeah. She also, I think she was told to do that by another friend. So you have to think of the peer dynamics, you know? Yes. And have you had that from the other side? Have you had people who are just very, very, uh, biological essentialist, really objective terms like trans man, for example, uh, find it incredibly distressing if somebody uses a pronoun which aligns with somebody's presentation and like somebody who's making an effort to pass as a member of the opposite sex. And there are those of us who say, well, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do that. It seems like a civil thing to do. Um, 
do you find the same level of kind of categorical all or nothing? Have you had any people come to you and say, how dare you from the other angle? Yeah, that's a really good question that I've asked a few people. Cause again, I come from this left background. I'm in Washington DC, which is very much a blue uh, democratic progressive city. Um, and so I don't encounter those people as much. Mm -hmm. And so my experience has definitely been the people who are leaning the other way, um, who are willing to talk to me in the first place, know that I'm kind of still a progressive lefty. And so they, if they didn't have some tolerance for that, they would have brushed me off already. Um, I haven't put myself out there so much as the person who's, you know, like, I mean, I don't think, if you, I, I think you can be transgender. I'm not against being transgender per se. Um, and so the people who think that I think wouldn't be talking to me. So I, but I asked this to some of the people I've connected with on the internet and they assured me that those people exist uh, on the right. But I, in term, I think it, we would not perceive that again, being in a, in a progressive bubble, but also the progressive uh, types tend to control more of the media as people say. I mean, I think there's truth to that. So it's probably, it, it seems it's easier to do that on the, on, on the left. They're more, they have more backdrop, they have more support in just cutting people off than if you're trying to be a, you know, on the other side. <laughs> see, from, from my point of view, it's, I see that as more associated at the minute anyway, with radical feminism. And of course that's not necessarily coming from the right. So there is this radical feminist point of view that is very, very hard line on all of this and, and, it's not really clear that these two things can be uh, sort of linked to one another. Let me phrase that another way. It's almost like the horseshoe theory, right? That in some ways, the radical feminists and the men's rights activists, which I guess you could just chalk up to archetypally left and right. I mean, I know that's a bit basic, but you could probably link in that way. They're, they're, they're coming at this from a very similar perspective, even though they have completely different beliefs. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I, I completely forgot about that. But of course, you're correct um, that there are some pretty uh, militant stances. And I, I only know those people through Twitter. I, I follow some, but I guess I didn't unfollow them. But I think Twitter just decided that I interacted with them less. And so I don't see them, right? Um, but I'm definitely aware that they're out there. And I think that is one of those um, zero sum situations from for those two camps. Now, the the negotiations and the discussion will have to happen without the gender ideologues and without the really militant radical feminists, though. I mean, I sympathize. I say that, you know, I, I sympathize with people who have been raped, you know, people who just have been abused. Like I have so much sympathy for that. And I understand why they hold the views that they do. And when, and there's a story that's just come out of Edinburgh that um, this guy, he, we can call him a guy, he doesn't have a gender recognition certificate. He is legally male, biologically male, and is running the rape crisis center. And it comes back to this idea that it's, it's so categorical, it's not good enough for it to be like, well, you use a certain pronoun, you uh, maybe use a certain name. It has to be, I am so much of a woman as you that I can go into that space, which is of all spaces in the world, the one where you're going to say, this is probably not good to have, even to have male cleaners. Like, it's just not what you would choose to do. It's a specific thing that women go through. Um, so 
yeah, that's that's an, that's interesting to me because I think that nobody wants to throw the radical feminists under the bus when it comes to people like Yaniv, when it comes to these really very predatory males. And the radical feminists were the first people to, to notice this, and that has to be recognised. At the same time, this you start to get towards a risk that actually this whole situation becomes so... Um, fossilized, everyone digs in their heels so much that it can almost trap a young man who's identifying as trans. It can kind of trap him in that because, yeah. The loudest voices always are the ones that get heard. And I think that, I mean, I think that the parents of these kids who are out there saying, like trying to negotiate these nuances have to be, they're the, the hope for having a discussion, which is, you know, a heavy weight to place on them because they're struggling to have it. But you know, the idea of the predatory man who really is transitioning because they get some sort of, you know, erotic rise out of this. I mean, that exists. It's not most trans people, but we can't say categorically it never happens. Trying to get into the rape crisis center is one issue. And that's a very different conversation than this other sort of negotiating, okay, what is this that's happening to this group? of young people and their struggles. And is it even, I think that, I mean, what drives so many of us is the question is, is this really gonna make these people happy in the long term? And I, I think that just gets, it's so obvious, no one thinks to say it, but people are written off as bad faith actors. So yeah, that's, that's where the discussion has to happen and they have to be separated um, somehow. But the internet of course will magnify the most scandalous and entrenching sort of views so there's the 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 algorithm problem yeah the clickbait problem um i want to ask you as well another really nice basic question if you let's say you'd been born in the year 2000 do you think you would have done this i have asked myself that and there are I, I think I would have been my group, right? I would have been in this peer circle. Now, a personal trait for me that says maybe not, I've even asked my mom this. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you were that kind of kid um, and you did want to run away from feminine things. Um, I, I, I know I would have wanted to have had a mastectomy you know, at that age. I definitely wanted to. So that would have been a temptation for sure. But I'm also a little bit contrarian. So the minute everyone started doing it, I would have been the kid to be like, I don't know about you guys. I mean, maybe that's why I like positive disintegration. Maybe that would have been my multi-level sort of thing. Um, yeah, that's that's where I am with, with how I think it might have unfolded for me. That's interesting because it is, to me, the whole thing now, it's such a brand identity trance. It's such a powerful brand identity. It's It's become very corporate i mean it has these two tones this particular tone of pink this particular tone of blue uh it's this whole language which comes with it and i do hope that some of the young people who are genuinely exploring something which is important and has creative potential within them can start to understand that it's like you're probably not this artistic person that you think you are if you are just going to be in this really brand identity kind of almost quite corporate thing rather than branching off in some other more exciting direction 
Yeah, I think what you're speaking of is of that brand identity is exactly what I think I would have would have turned me off as yeah. a teenager. And it yeah. relates to being this type of kid who is a now adult who is a little bit contrarian, but at, you know, asks these sort of questions and really doesn't, I don't want to, I've always struggled to fit a mold. And when I feel compelled to fit into a mold, uh, I will run away. And so, but, but the competing pressure that I see at, uh, among a lot of people at third factor, they come to third factor because they are lonely. Loneliness is the number one issue for my readers. I did not realize that when I started it. I thought we would be talking about, again, doing the thing. How do we empower each other to do creative things? Well, I guess that isn't a very large leap to get to loneliness. And so maybe you do kind of bend a little bit. I mean, of course I have tried to bend at certain places in my life. I, it's funny that we, you know, anime comes up because I studied and taught and worked uh, at some other job in Japan. And everyone watched anime and I was like, I, I wasn't super into anime, but like, all right, we're going to watch anime. Anime is a thing that I like with my friends. And then I didn't do that after a while because mm. I didn't really like it. But <laughs> you always have to negotiate that, right? Like, okay, this is my best fit for this group. Oh, I can't take it anymore, this group, especially because in, you know, people who are uniting around something unhealthy. That a lot of them, because they need that belonging, unfortunately, will band together and pull everyone down. You know, everyone will drown together. Mm -hmm. But some people, for whatever reason, something will turn, you know, make them think, oh, I got to get out. And they will let go. And they'll be like, I'd rather be by myself. It's better to be a loner than to sync with everyone else. Yeah, because I, I also have that gives me the space and the time to reach my own conclusions rather than being presented with the beliefs that I have to hold and then having to strike out from that position by proving that it's incorrect, just to start with a kind of blank sheet. And I think that that's something that a lot of detransitioners will be able to associate with, that they got to a point where they were so immersed in all of this stuff about gender and it took over everything and they kind of realized, hold on a minute, I now thought myself into a position where the onus is on me to prove that something isn't about gender, which is kind of an impossible thing to do because it's yeah. so abstract. The best hope, I, the idea that I think is the best I have for, for helping these kids who are still in this, and I haven't tested it, I don't know, this could fail, but given that they are so often creative, you know, creative people have a drive to do the next thing and the next thing and like what's your next thing that you're going to do okay you've done gender i get it you've got that thing going but isn't it getting a little stale right don't you want to do something that isn't and it's the, the, the reason i think this is going to be bad for this particular cohort is the energy that goes into maintaining your body in a way that isn't natural to it takes away that energy you know you you need to that to be on autopilot as much as possible to go do the thing to create other things um and it's only worth it if it's really filling some sort of you know acute emotional wound and once that wound starts to scab over and it stops throbbing so much i don't think for a lot of these kids it will be worth it anymore so pushing them to try to do the next thing you know, and encouraging them, giving them some good, I see this wonderful thing you offer. We're talking so much about the pathology, pathological elements that go with this way of being. And that gets focused on so much because, you know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But there, 
there is this book that I also think your uh, listeners should should take a look at called The Orchid and the Dandelion. I was hoping and, we were going to get to the yeah yeah go on. Yeah, right. So we because we have talked once before, and this word orchid came up, and it was so interesting that you had thought of this independently, um, and I brought it up. This this is a wonderful book about these sort of people and and orchids. They got studied. The guy who, who wrote it um, is a now I think retired, but a physician. So he's looking back over his whole life, a uh, physician and a researcher. And he studied these kids, which are the same type of kids. Orchid is another word for the highly sensitive, the you know, the gifted, whatever, all these words, they're all orchids. And when an orchid gets what it needs, it is a beautiful, amazing, impressive flower. When it doesn't, and it needs very precise things, it will drop all its petals and wilt. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the doctor who did this research, uh, W. Thomas Boyce, he had a sister who was an orchid who completely wilted. And that is very similar to Kazmierz Dombrowski, whose, whose friend committed suicide, right? Uh, and so you see, you start st- researching the, the horrible uh, cases of what happens to these sort of people. But the thing about orchids is, and this is made clear by case studies in uh, the orchid and the dandelion, that and the dandelion is the kid who can thrive anywhere right like grow right, yeah. from cracks in between concrete so four case studies of orchids four of dandelions and the orchids when they get what they need really do thrive and they're the same raw material as these kids who are thriving they have it in them to thrive this is not a pathology that they're always going to be stuck with that's always going to hold them back it's both right um and so i think to the extent that you can put these kids in touch with the good stuff, you know, what they have to offer that's really genuinely good. Um, it's not a sure bet, but it's it's the best bet, I think. Brilliant. That's such a, I think uh, that's the perfect place to end uh, because this idea of orchid, it really just nails it that this there's so much beauty and so much potential in some of these lives. And so, like you say, the parents really, the, the answer has to be with the parents because they know these kids yeah. and they can see that. And um, so I will be sending them over to Third Factor for sure. I would love to get to know some of them, invite them in to talk about this. You know, they're free to discuss it in our forum if they'd like to, or reach out to me privately. Jesse at thirdfactor.org is my email. So um, yeah, get in touch. Perfect. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Angus. It's been a pleasure.